0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more.
1: So ask yourself, what is it you want?
0: Discover Williamsburg
1: and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: If you're thinking I should go for a run today, Hello, and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com, or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play.
1: Greetings to the April episode of Radio Astronomy, listeners. I'm Elizabeth Pearson, the BBC Sky at Night magazine's news editor, and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hi. And staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later in the episode, we'll be talking to Taylor Stone from Delft University about the impact of light pollution, as well as telling you our top stargazing tip to see in this month's night sky. But now we're going to take a look at what we found out over the last month whilst we've been researching the magazine. Um, So I think I'm going to start off today with all of the exciting news that's been happening in the last couple of weeks from uh, SpaceX. Yeah. So they flew their first ever commercial crew module. Um, called Crew Dragon Mm -hmm. up to the ISS and docked and um, did a bunch of tests and it all seems to have gone well, um, which is great. Uh, So this is the first step on the way to the US being able to to send astronauts back into space again.
0: Fantastic news, isn't it? Mm. They had a dummy on this latest mission, didn't they?
1: Uh, yes, there was a mannequin covered in sensors called Ripley, um after the uh um alien, alien protagonist? protagonist. yes, yeah, um they do tend to to like putting yeah. mannequins with with names in there their, <laughs> their, their, they uh, when they first sent up their mm. I think it was their Falcon Heavy, yeah, um they had a Tesla on board which had a mannequin in. um, and it just it's like even though it doesn't have a person in, it does make it seem that sort of a bit more real. Mm. Um,
2: suppose it makes it kind of a bit more. Something else you can kind of show the public, you know, mm. something to kind of get involved in. But like, did, was it, was there, a, was this mission in any way practically adv- advantageous? Did, did they have supplies on or anything or any food or no, anything? No, like they
1: didn't. No? It was just, as far as I'm aware, it was just uh, the mannequin and a cuddly toy version of the Earth um, <laughs> that was very cute and it went on little adventures around the um, ISS and I got lots of <laughs> pictures of that. Um, but I think they wanted it to be as realistic as possible and you wouldn't have supplies on a mission like this. So mm. it's you don't want to risk jeopardising your your readings because it is important they make sure that it's before they start putting people on these things. Mm. They want to make sure that it's safe and run it as as accurately as possible. Yeah.
0: Currently, um, it's the Soyuz um, spacecraft that's the only um, vessel going up, spacecraft going up to the ISS, isn't it? Yes. So yeah. this is the second one and it's actually uh, – a great thing—it's actually bigger than the Soyuz um, capsule, isn't it? By it quite can carry quite a It carries Seven amount. people,
1: whereas the Soyuz can do three. Very crampedly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's also much more automated, which means that there's going to be a lot shorter training times. So this is one of kind of Space X's big goals—is as well as making all of their spacecraft reusable. Um, the Crew Dragon will eventually be, hopefully, completely reusable. Um, but by putting more people on it and. Having shorter training times, it's just all about reducing the cost of space travel, mm-hmm. and so that hopefully one day it won't just be you know space agencies and the super rich that are going into space it's mm-hmm. it's normal people as well um, and
0: the other great thing is it's got this really cool nose cone, hasn't it that kind of flips up yeah. like a james Bond <laughs> that's just awesome. I love that little bit in the video where it was docking, and it's went...
1: yeah, it like
0: awesome. <laughs> awesome
1: it does it does definitely. <laughs> Look, because the 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 Soyuz capsules were built in the 60s and they've been de- developed mm. and refined since then, but they're still very 1960s. <laughs> you know, lots of sort of switches and things. And then you look inside um uh, SpaceX's and also Boeing's uh the their rival company Boeing uh, Starliner. Mm. And they just look so futuristic and what you expect a spacecraft to actually look like in this day and age.
2: Yeah, I mean mm. I, I suppose that it, it is worth pointing out that the the Soyuz has been proven to be very reliable you know over, over the decades
1: <laughs> until <laughs> a few months ago I would have agreed with you on that one um, but uh, uh, back in late 2018 they had a couple of issues with yeah. it um, one had to do an emergency uh, land, abort landing a launch oh um, was that
0: parabolic descent
1: yes wasn't it? They, yeah. it was It oh, was ballist,
2: some... sorry b- ballistic descent yes oh. something went wrong yeah. during
1: launch and they had to do a, a abort mission
2: well um, you know if if you can consider the stats and on the, on the averages over the decades, considering I, mean, I think it's yeah. like
1: in its entire forty-year run, there's been you know like three accidents, mm-hmm. yeah. so that's pretty good going.
2: That's the other thing about this, this SpaceX, um, and then the kind of um, US astronauts launching once more from American soil is that it's ultimately the end of that that collaboration in in terms of launching anyway between um, cosmonauts and astronauts, isn't it? Because I, I presume we, you won't have any more have. European and U.S. astronauts going to
1: there ca- might be, Kazakhstan? There or? might be European astronauts.
2: Who's European, um, yeah.
1: I, th- I, I don't know too much about what their plans are. I think the U.S., uh, the, the ESA, are currently locked in for the Soyuz because yeah. they knew that that was going to be running and they didn't know when the commercial crew program was going to get off the ground, uh, literally. <laughs> and But sort of as they go forward, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Um. Apparently there was some, whilst the Russians... S- seemed to be all smiles that behind the scenes there was some uh, passive aggressive comments being made towards um, the US apparently by some of the Russians. Oh right. Okay. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. The
2: other thing I wanted to actually uh, point out was that um, the uh, capsule parachuted into the ocean whereas we, we have seen mm-hmm. SpaceX rockets land again. Yes. But I, it didn't happen with this one?
1: No. Um, it was it was recovered from the ocean um, by SpaceX's recovery barge. Uh, i I think their plan is they they still want to reuse the the Crew Dragon. Um, they have to give it a bit of a clean because it's got you know doused in seawater. But um, I, I think it's just it's a little bit too dangerous to. Because that they, they they have managed to get their booster rockets to land quite a lot, but they do still fall over relatively frequently and <laughs> you know explode in. <laughs> Beautiful, but fiery balls of flame. Um, and you don't really want to do that if you've got somebody on board. And so it's just much safer and much more reliable to to, to ditch into the ocean. And of course, the SpaceX's ultimate goal is to one day reach Mars um, ah. and head off in that direction. And we've been hearing a little bit more from Mars lately, haven't we, Ian?
2: Yes, that actually brings us on quite nicely. Um, this month, um, as part of the uh, online content, uh, I was speaking to uh, Abigail Freeman, who's a, who's the deputy project scientist of the Opportunity rover mission um, at mm. NASA's JPL. Um, and yeah, it, it was big news over the past month because um, NASA finally called time on the Opportunity mission. Mm. Um, basically, it was like last summer, there was a, a global dust storm. Every, every mm. few years mm. in the summer, Mars gets these dust storms um, and uh, it, part of the problem is that the Opportunity rover was a uh, solar paneled rover so that obviously blocks out the sunlight and stops it from operating but even when the dust storm cleared they still couldn't get uh, tran- transmission back from it um, mm-hmm. so they had to basically call time on it in uh, in February so just in the mm-hmm last month but i mean it, it landed on mars in 2004 It was only supposed to go for 90 days and it was like wow. about 14 and a half years
1: they oh, they amazing. do yeah. they do tend to make things to last at nasa yeah.
2: that's brilliant they built in a lot of redundancy there yeah <laughs> no doubtless there
0: will be some um satellite images from uh the mars express or something in mm. the future showing they will have found it they know where it, they you know and this is Zooming in, you can see a little tiny speck and <laughs> this, this will be Opportunity's uh, mm. final resting place. Yeah, yeah. you would imagine. Um, they did it for Beagle, didn't they? They found um, right. the so, yes. Beagle, Beagle Probe on Mars. Is
1: th- the problem is it depends on how much dust is on yeah, Opportunity. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It might be buried in a massive dune yeah.
0: or something. You never know.
1: I think one of the, the things that I... It was sort of bittersweet, but the apparently its last transmission was words to the effect of... Um, my battery is low and I'm running um, and it's getting dark, or something. Oh, it was in, in engineering <laughs> oh, yeah. speak, but yeah, as you saw oh, that one sort of yeah. going round. It sounds
0: like it could be this, the um, chorus of a Bowie tune. Or
1: something.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it must actually be quite uh, emotional. I mean, I, I was I was speaking to uh, Abigail Freeman, as I say, for oh. the the uh, interview for this month's uh, online content, and uh, she was. She, she, she kind of makes the point that it is—it is kind of like an, an emotional attachment. She actually um, was a uh, sixteen-year-old uh, college student to, visiting NASA um, as part of a, an outreach program when Opportunity landed, mm. Goodness and now man. you know. A decade or so later, she's the Deputy Project Scientist. So it's actually that's quite great. an interesting story. And there's just yeah. kind of like a lot of humanity behind these um NASA that's, missions. Yeah. One
1: of the things that I really like about the the NASA Mars missions is because you see it over and over again. There was people who saw the previous one and that's what made them go into space science. And then they're working on the next one. It's, yeah. You know, the people who were on Voyager ended up working on Pathfinder. The people on Pathfinder, like got inspired by Pathfinder, went on to do the rovers. And I... It, you can just see the sort of baton being passed down through history.
2: Yeah, wow. and I suppose it also, you know, kind of makes the point of why it's so important to get to do things like outreach programs for mm-hmm. for young people uh-huh. to kind of see, you know, and people decide that's what I want to do with my life, and then they become the new the new generation. But it's also worth kind of talking about exactly what the, what the rovers do on Mars. I mean, o- Opportunity was effectively a robotic geologist. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was it did was um, looked at rocks, really. And uh, it could actually grind into them and expose surfaces and and you know s- analyze them basically and it's all it's all part of working out what Mars was like um, in its ancient past. You know, three billion years ago, I think its climate was a lot different. Could have potentially had, mm. you know Well, I think it's pretty pretty much conclusive that it had water in its in its ancient mm. past.
1: It's I think There's this, so much evidence,
2: isn't there? Yeah, the mm.
1: yeah. the uh, Mars exploration rovers, which is what um, Spirit and Opportunity's real name is, um, mm. they were very much part of NASA's Follow the Water um, initiative, which is on Mars. If you want to to find potentially life, if you want to understand the geology of how these planets grow, the first thing you need to do is follow the water. Mm-hmm. So that's mm. what it did.
2: Yeah, and now the only rover left is Curiosity, um, but there's going to be a, a whole ream of...
0: Mm. New ones joining yeah. soon, aren't
2: they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh,
1: just as well, because Curiosity's been having a few issues as well lately.
2: That's um, right. Had to, like a hiccup. Had to had to had to reset. It's it's uh, yes. software. Yes.
1: Um, about again last summer during the dust storms, it had some computer upset um, in September, and then it. Um, needed to have an emergency reset. And it seems to be going all right, but it's, you know, it's slightly more computer glitches than than the people at NASA are entirely comfortable with. <laughs> so it's it's just as well that we're getting in 2020 not one, but two rovers heading over towards Mars.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, and speaking of planetary science, um, Chris, you've been looking at uh, the uh, comp- some results from the Juno mission and... Yeah, that's right. In our um, our back page interview um,
0: in the April issue, uh, we've got an interview with Dr. Lee Fletcher from the University of Leicester, who is um, a collaborator uh, with the Juno team, which is NASA's probe around Jupiter. And um, he's got some really interesting... He's been doing some really interesting stuff with the results that are coming in from uh, Juno and kind of pairing it up with observations from Earth and... Uh, seeing how weather and cloud and other formations develop on Jupiter, which is amazing because you know we we can only see the the top um, the very top of the cloud and and Jupiter and it's a it's a um, planet without without any ground um, <laughs> yeah. without a hard, a hard surface so you know who knows what's going on underneath yeah um, and one of the things that Juno is doing for the first time is it's giving us the ability to look into um, Jupiter underneath the clouds. Um, I mean, everybody knows with with um, Juno, the Juno cam, which sends back these fabulous kind of tie-dye marble type I images I love of clouds, those pictures. They're so, so beautiful. And um, But, it, but um, Lee Fletcher is saying that his favourite instrument on Juno is the microwave instrument, mm. which is the thing that allows... Um, Which allows him to see under the clouds and see what is cooking up underneath. It's just I could, you know, it's just one of these things. It's it's a great unknown, isn't it? It's like you know the Mariana's Trench on Earth or something. what Mm. the hell is going on? I remember
1: in there, there's such
0: weird stuff, isn't there? Like metallic hydrogen and things like that. it's really really it's really it's a really really freaky environment i remember a
1: couple of years ago i was writing a feature about the the great red spot which Mm. is this it's this thing it's been on mars we've known it's there for like 150 years probably longer longer, yeah yeah. and we have no idea what's going on beneath the surface um i remember we were trying to get an illustration of of sort of like the cross section of it and it was it like it's Basically, it ended up being we don't know what's going on under there. Yeah, um, And so I think it's great that you've got these instruments um, yeah. that now can sort of go beneath the surface and try and find out what's going on about the weather of Yeah, um, absolutely.
0: It's absolutely amazing. And He's saying that he can kind of track um, cloud formations from the ground and now he's got this data set from Juno that allows him and he can match up observations from the from earth with kind of infrared telescopes with these microwave readings from juno and see where see what the kind of processes that are going on you know at deeper levels on on jupiter and how they relate to what's happening up above which is Mm. which is a fascinating thing and it's allowing us to build up a picture of how um weather on glass gas giants operates and you know that can that can help with exoplanets that can help with you know predicting the weather on our on Our own planet, I should imagine
1: it also helps with the, the, the sun as well because that's a just yeah, it's that's basically another just big another big of, weather system, yeah, um, yeah, that's
0: right, ball of gas, yeah. It? I think yeah. the
1: thing that because I, I sort of always forget that you know, sort of weather just doesn't happen in like there's not like this is where the cloud is and that's everything, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it goes right the way down and it all interacts with yeah, each other and it's yeah. all just this big, ridiculously complicated mess,
0: yes, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a very different environment to Earth, I mean, there isn't yet, yeah, there aren't any. There's no ground. There's no ocean. So mm. you know, there's no kind of drivers for for change there, and it's probably you know kind of a lot more magnetic and electrical. Um, and there's no there's nothing that can stop any once something started. This thing can just go on, which hence why we see the the great red spot. It's been going on for you know hundreds and hundreds yeah. of years, and mm. also shrinking. If I remember, yes, it? Yeah. yeah, indeed, indeed.
1: That's- it's, yes, it's shrinking and changing colour. I believe it changes colour quite a lot. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's becoming
0: less red. Isn't yeah, it? there's apparently yeah.
1: there was another storm which they thought might become the next great red spot, um, but I think that one's also trying to shrink as well. It'd be sad to see if it does go, but you know that's weather; these things happen. There we are. Yes, yeah.
0: yes, they run out eventually, don't they?
1: It seems a bit odd that you know that's kind of like one of the main features of Jupiter can just go away, sort of like if suddenly you know. Australia disappeared discipline. Discipline <laughs> yeah. off <there>. oh, Earth. <laughs> or just slowly disappeared over time. <laughs> yeah, even weirder. Like <laughs> yeah.
2: um, but yeah, I suppose that, that, that brings us on to um, this month's interview um, because Earth Hour is approaching uh, at the end mm-hmm. of this month on the 30th of March um, at 8.30pm UK time. It is Earth Hour. And it's, this is a, an annual campaign, a worldwide campaign, um, in which they, the organisers ask everyone to turn off their lights For an hour at the same time and basically to raise awareness of of light pollution um, and and get people thinking about darkness and whether or not um, artificial light is kind of we're we're kind of missing something, especially in in towns and cities. And, you know, in in terms of the fact that we can't we can't see, you know, the Milky Way, maybe we miss the phases of the moon and things like that. And I've I've been speaking to uh, Taylor Stone of uh, Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. He researches the ethics behind artificial light and light pollution. And so I started off by asking him whether he thought that light pollution was a big problem.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of increasing recognition of just the, the negative and adverse impacts that uh, nighttime lighting has uh, from a variety of perspectives, including on our health and on ecosystems. Uh, but also, I think one of the sort of the most striking numbers that people often use are just the, the economic costs and energy usage. Uh, there's been some estimates that the... Uh, Just the cost of uh, wasted light in the European Union can be upwards of 5 billion euros a year uh, and something like 23 billion kilograms of CO2 emissions. Um, And so, you know, you can debate the whether these numbers are exact or not. um, But I think what it shows is just the scale of the impact of this infrastructure that we have and the negative impacts that, that that it can produce uh that, that we need to pay attention to
2: when you say wasted light w- what exactly do you do you mean by that
3: it's more of a technical question i would say what what is what we consider to be wasted light so light shone upwards or not used for its intended uh, purpose and i think you can sort of debate so what we mean by wasted light um but I think the under underlying this is just the scale of the impact of lighting and the cost and energy usage it has um, is is sort of the important takeaway, I would say.
2: I mean obviously from our perspective, we're kind of interested in uh, how light pollution affects the, the amount of stars that we can see in the night sky. Um, mm-hmm. is, is there a way of kind of quantifying that? can, can, can you kind of say how, how much how, how fewer stars or 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 the effects of of our view of the night sky that light pollution actually has?
3: Well, I think, of course, anecdotally, we, can, we all sort of know when we, when we uh, live in cities or travel to these sort of uh, metropolitan regions and look up, you can see. I mean, there's, you know, at best, on a clear sky, there's a few dozen stars available versus when you're in a sort of a pristine night sky, the, the, the difference uh, it makes. Um, but yeah, I think in 2016, the latest The World Atlas of Artificial Night Sky Brightness uh, was released. Um, yeah, and their, their conclusions were that you know, 99% of the population in the European Union or in Europe uh, live in areas that uh, are considered to have light-polluted skies, uh, and most people live in areas where it's uh, several magnitudes greater. To the point that something like uh, three fifths, or about sixty percent of the population, can no longer see the Milky Way.
2: And I suppose this must be a pretty recent problem in the history of humanity. I mean, can you kind of say when when light pollution starts becoming a a massive problem in 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 history?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it it, it is kind of it's quite a fascinating issue to think about lighting infrastructure in that sense, because electric light is, we, we, we sort of take it to be, uh, we take it for granted as this sort of everyday experience that's always been there, but really it's only been possible at this scale for a few generations. Um, and so light pollution as, as a concept and as a problem really only emerged in the last few decades, I think, alongside rising uh, you know environmental movements and, and so on. Um, and so there's always been concerns going going back some time about the, the effects, the negative effects around things like glare and otherwise that uh, electric light can have. But this idea of light pollution, that light can somehow be polluting ourselves, polluting the environment, is a relatively recent sort of phenomenon or categorization, I would say.
2: And do, do you think that there is... Um... That actually has an effect on on people who live in cities that you know that the the fact that they can't can't actually see the milky way or you know they they maybe don't take as much notice of of things like the the faces of the moon um they they might not be aware of it but do you think that there is a a, an effect on us as a as a society
3: so i think i think that's it's an interesting and an open-ended question and i think you see it even in um even in scientific papers looking at the the effects or extent of uh, of light pollution, you see this this sort of idea that, you know, we the night sky has been the source of inspiration of religion, mythology, navigation, culture, and so on for, for all of human history. And in certain parts of the world, we've we've effectively cut ourselves off from this experience in just a matter of a few uh, generations. So, what exactly the long term effects? an impact on society is, is, I think, an open question. Um, but I think you can think about it also from the perspective of environmental ethics. Um, and this idea that, that uh, you know, the access to a starry night sky or an unpolluted night sky can be a sort of truly sublime experience and sort of put our, take ourselves out of our daily lives and, and to be able to sort of in this situation and immersed in the natural world in a way that we can't put ourselves outside of or above of and so there at least exists a possibility there to foster some sort of an environmental ethic or at least see sort of uh the impact of our lighting in a different uh, light
2: yeah but just also putting um kind of astronomy and stargazing aside there there must be other issues with with light pollution and one of the things i was thinking about was this idea that for for millennia, um, both humans and, and animals have lived uh, with it being light at daytime and dark at nighttime, and that's kind of our natural cycle. But that that must be being upset a bit by the kind of uh, pervasion of light pollution in cities. Does Are you aware of, of kind of detrimental effects in, in that respect, both for, for humans and for for, for animals?
3: I think f- for ecosystems and wildlife and so on, the, the effects of this sort of rapidly changing uh, um levels of illumination at night ha- have been quite studied and it's a relatively new field, but it's being increasingly studied the effects on different flora and fauna, um, whether it's positive or negative, usually negative. Um, and yeah, I mean to use the term detrimental to to humans, I mean there's health effects that, that we that we uh, have to deal with. Uh, but then there's, there's these larger sort of changes that we've undergone in moving towards this 24-7 societies and always having access to different services and, and uh, mobility at night. Um, and so there are negative effects There are positive effects. I think it's uh, sort of a condition of uh, modern urbanized life to live in the, this new sort of uh, environment where we have uh, created this new space. Uh, out of artificial illumination. Um, and so I'm always a bit hesitant to use detrimental too, too broadly. Um, but I think it, it's worth reflecting on just the extent of these impacts and taking a step back and asking what is needed and what is uh, desirable about uh, this. And this can help lead us towards questions of how much light we actually want and need. At
2: night. Yeah, that's true. Because I suppose lots of people would, would think of things like security, you know, if, if someone's walking home late at night, then light helps them be visible and make make them feel safer, and perhaps even be safer. I mean, is it about reaching a compromise? Do you think?
3: Yeah, I think, I think compromise would be a good way to look at it. Um, because there's, of course, I think any dark sky advocate would agree that there are instances where uh, we want and need light at night. Right. And then I think anyone, even anyone who sort of you stop on the street, hasn't thought about this after a five minute conversation, they could agree that, you know, okay, maybe we have too much light. There's instances where we could get rid of it. Seeing the night sky would be great or otherwise, or you know, even reducing my energy bill would be great. Um, And then there's, of course, this big gray area in between. Um, And so compromise is one way. But I think another way we can look at it is as a policy and design challenge. Um, because you know there, there there are a lot of studies out there that contest this idea that more light actually increases safety and security. Um, but I think it's pretty undeniable that lighting at night often makes us feel safer in cities. And so there's this question of then how can we design our spaces that that can satisfy both these goals of environmental values or reduction in light pollution or access to uh, a night sky and Make sure people feel and are, in fact, uh, safe at night. Uh, both, uh, you know, in terms of feeling safe walking around, but also just practically safe, so they don't trip on things or, uh, you know, in places where there are cars and people, where we we make sure that pedestrians are visible and so on. Um, and I think this is where new and emerging technologies and smart systems and ideas of responsive lighting, if we can sort of think about these as opportunities to design in these sort of environmental values and to satisfy these different goals of safety and um, environmental values of reducing light pollution. There are there are some exciting opportunities ahead.
2: On the 30th of March, um, there's a, a campaign called Earth Hour, um, mm-hmm. when uh, people are invited all over the world at the same time to turn off their lights for an hour, I suppose, as a way of Raising awareness of of light pollution and 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 darkness. It I just wanted to gauge your your thoughts on this. Do you think things like this are important, or do you think they're kind of a uh, a show and, and and don't actually have a, a good effect? I was wondering I was wondering what your what your thoughts would be on on something like Earth Hour.
3: It, as you just uh, <clears throat> said, I think what's quite interesting about Earth Hour is that you know as as we had discussed a bit earlier about this the history of lighting and how we take it to be just sort of the way things are. We take it for granted. It's just in the backdrop. These are moments that are quite interesting, where we refocus on lighting in these, in sort of making these purposeful blackouts, let's say, um, and then lighting almost becomes symbolic of the environmental impact that our urban development or humans have uh, on on the earth, which is quite quite interesting, and I think uh, important that we can see lighting in this way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the nice things about the nice stuff about something like Earth Hour is, you know, that well, one has a sense of community. Uh, you can bring people together for a common cause, and also it can help to raise awareness—not just about lighting, but but more broadly about our impacts. Um, and so, I think, but I think the the biggest takeaway I would see from this is this idea that you know it's i wouldn't say it's necessarily a solution but it gives us an opportunity to take a step back from our daily lives and see things otherwise see and start to think about how we could live differently how our cities could be designed differently and sort of and use this for inspiration and, and to start thinking creatively about what sorts of uh, what sort of future we want
1: that was taylor stone Find out more about what you can do to help curb light pollution in this month's Explainer in the April issue of BBC Sky Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky, and you can find all about it in this month's Sky Guide. But if you're looking for one single thing to single out this month, why not look towards the Pleiades? You can find this star cluster quite easily as Orion's belt points the way. Follow the line drawn by the belt upwards with your naked eye, past Taurus, until you see a patch of haze with several bright stars. Once you've located it with your eyes, Take a closer look with a pair of binoculars. If you take a look during the first half of April, you should be able to see the bright reddish light of Mars as it passes by the cluster. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about fighting light pollution at home in the April issue of BBC Sky Night magazine, where we also look at astronomy you can do from inside your own house, give tips for selecting your first telescope, and learn about the incredible legacy of NASA's planet-hunting telescope, Kepler. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky Night magazine, goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.